welcome to the PSD Cast with your host, Jason Lumberg with Power Systems Design. Over the past few years, the globe has been rocked by an energy crisis, in part because of Europe's reliance on Russian fossil fuels and the war in Ukraine upending the traditional paradigm. But it's more than that, as the world has been steadily moving towards low-carbon alternative energy, though in a few cases, war has caused countries to re-embrace fossil fuels like coal. Either way, the money flowing into renewable energy has slowed down considerably as GHG's report shocked concludes that between 2020 and 2022, energy investments were about $203 billion lower than expected under normal market conditions. And on the line to discuss their findings is GHG's global leader of future energy, Dr. Tej Gita. So, Dr. Gita, thanks for joining us. And your opinion, what's the main cause or causes for our contemporary energy crisis? Well, Jason, it's definitely causes. There's definitely more than one. And I think we have to start with COVID. I mean, we obviously went through a very difficult time. One of the things we saw when we went out and surveyed all these energy companies, approximately 400 plus of them, a lot of them said that coming out of COVID was one of the big reasons for the current crisis that we're feeling because we all you know, consumed less energy during COVID. We didn't fly as much. We didn't drive as much. Consumption was down. When we all came out of COVID, demand went up and turning on the system again, recalibrating that system for the increased demand is a really big part of what we're seeing right now in terms of the energy crisis. But but it's not just that. Um, As you said, there's more than one cause here. I think the geopolitical tensions, and you mentioned Europe, I think that Ukraine-Russia conflict has certainly upended the energy markets in Europe. So we've got two, two shocks right there that are happening at the same time that are creating a very, very complex uh, dilemma across the world in, in the in the uh, in the world of energy. Okay, now what have been some of the main side effects of the energy crisis? I I think there's been a lot. Um, the way we sort of broke it down and took a look at it when we released our shock report is to look at you know what are those consequences on three main areas or pillars of society. So what's the societal shock? What's the uh, climate shock? And what's the security shock? So we've seen all three of those. And I'll, I'll just pick, pick on a couple of those. Um, you sort of indicated that people are not spending as much in the energy system. That's true. Investment is down by over $200 billion over those three years. We also saw, from a, from a climate standpoint, a number of companies, energy companies around the world, are slowing down their pathway to net zero. Many of these companies have made commitments. And they're now saying, we're going to take a little bit longer to get there. About half the respondents said that. At the same time, the other half said they're accelerating their pathway to net zero. They're going to do it earlier than 2050 because they have their own drivers. So that's a really interesting sort of uh, shock to their system in terms of how they're going to, going to actually achieve net zero. I'm really interested and really concerned, actually, about the societal shock. A lot of our increased pricing and inflation right now is due to energy price. And I think we have to ask ourselves the question, how do the people who can't potentially or can't, you know, potentially afford that, how do they afford that? How do people who don't have the highest income afford the increased price that we're seeing now, both in developed countries where we live, but also in the developing world? I think there's a really, really profound societal shock that's happening now. And I think that security piece, 
you know, a lot of the people we talked to, about three-quarters of the energy leaders that we talked to said energy security is the number one concern for them. They're worried about being able to produce reliable, consistent energy for their consumers. Um, so what are they going to do about that? I think they're taking huge steps to digitize their systems. They are looking to invest more in renewables, to diversify their supply, to make sure that they have more storage on the system. We saw that come uh, through in our shock report quite clearly. Everyone understands we need more storage on the system if we're going to be resilient against future shocks, which we know are going to happen. It's just sort of a matter of time. We need a more resilient energy system so we can weather those, those upheavals in the future. Of course. Now, um, this might sound self-explanatory, but uh, in a global sense, how will renewable, renewable energy help the world transcend the energy crisis that we're currently in the midst of? I think in many, many different ways. When Jason, when I when I talk about renewable energy, I talk about renewable electricity and I talk about renewable gases as well. I mean, there's there's two grids or three grids that we really are subject to around the world. There's electrical grids. I mean, only 20% of our energy is supplied by electricity. And then we have all the liquid fuels that we use for, for pumping our gasoline into our cars. We have natural gas, which is a very big piece of this as well. Um, all of those come together and. 80% of our energy consumption right now is fossil fuel in the world. It's a high number. Renewables are really going to help this equation in multiple ways. One, they allow us to distribute energy more locally. Renewables are local, local production centers based on where you can actually get the renewable resource, and that's a fantastic resource that we can take advantage of. I think the second part is it helps energy companies diversify their energy supply. So their eggs are not all in one basket. I think that's extremely important as we go forward because we mean we don't want to necessarily rely on some of the traditional forms of energy as heavily as we have in the past. And obviously the renewables have a really, really uh, profound effect on the climate side of this. Renewable energy does not, as during its operation, does not produce carbon dioxide, does not produce emissions to the atmosphere, does not do not contribute to the overall you know, climate ramifications that we're seeing right now. Um, it's a completely different um, environmental signature compared to a lot of our traditional energy forms. I don't think that means we're going to be off traditional fossil fuel energy anytime soon, even by 2050, if we're talking about net zero, and that's what we're talking about. That means fossil fuels will still be on the grid. We're not, we're not going to just turn them off tomorrow. Otherwise, we will have a really, really profound economic shock, I think. Um, but renewables are the way to get to that net zero. Renewables are going to be the way to get potentially beyond net zero into what I would call net negative thinking, where we're actually reducing emissions and actually potentially drawing emissions back from the atmosphere. So this this is the future. I firmly believe that's the future as we start transitioning from this, this period where we're 80% fossil fuels to a future where we're not. Okay, good. And how can we minimize the risk of the energy transition? Well, I think uh, that is a really good question. We talk to uh, our clients all the time about about the challenges, and a lot of it is really about risk and and perception of risk. So we we came up with a, a clarion call around what the priorities should be to de-risk the energy transition. Um, one is really taking a look at money and markets and marrying up the investment appetite out there for clean energy. A lot of people want to be in this space. They see it as their future. 
How do we marry that quantity of investment potential with the people who can actually deliver the infrastructure? And how can we make sure that money, as it flows into the decarbonization of the energy system, understands what they're investing in? I think that's a really important part of it. How, how do people know that their, their, their investment is going to be generating the return on investment that they want going forward, given that some of the things they're investing in don't have a huge track record? We're talking about things like hydrogen and carbon capture, all these other approaches that are coming out now. We need to be able to de-risk that by explaining to the money markets what this infrastructure really looks like, because at the end, it's really about infrastructure. I think the other part, you know, I'm an engineer, I'm an environmental engineer. I think um, supercharging engineered solutions, as we call it, is a second really, really important part of this. We are going to have to develop a lot of new technologies to hit net zero. The approaches we're using today are not going to be the ones that are the, the only ones that we're going to be using in 2050. New technologies need to be developed sooner or later to help us with this. I was just at the, a Reuters conference in New York, and, and I think uh, someone up on stage said that we need at least 50 new technologies to be deployed in the next 30 years if we're going to meet our net zero goal. So how do we get our engineers working? How do we understand what these technologies are? How do we interface with uh, research and development? The third one, I think, that is also really important is, is around supply chains and resources. And when I say supply chain and resources, I mean it from multiple angles to this. If I wanted to do a hydrogen project tomorrow, a green hydrogen project, it's going to take me a while to get my hands on the equipment that I need to do that, electrolyzers. I mean, they're, they're quite backed up in terms of supply. But also, where are all the critical minerals going to come from? for the energy transition. We know we need lithium for batteries, we need copper, we need cobalt. There's a number of those minerals that are gonna, are gonna create supply chain issues for us. So we need to find a way to balance those supply chains and make sure materials are moving into the market. But at the same time as we're doing that, I think the other parallel, just as important issue is talent and people. Where are we gonna get all the engineers and scientists and the planners and the stakeholder engagement professionals, the marketing communications people to really do all this work. Where are all these people who understand this basically new field or newish field that's developing? We need to find the talent. And I think that's about teaching people in universities and colleges, hey, this is a potential career path for you. This is what it looks like. But also reskilling existing workforces. That fantastic talent in the oil and gas sector People who really understand energy supply, energy generation, energy transmission, can we start reskilling them into this area? I think that's a really important thing to take a look at. Um, the fourth one, in terms of de-risking, and I see this one all the time, is around social acceptance and community understanding. People are going to live with the infrastructure we're about to build for decades. And this is big infrastructure. It's new infrastructure. Communities are going to house these types of things that we're building. And that's a very, very big ask of a lot of these communities. There's going to be job generation. There's going to be local economic activity, absolutely. But how are we going to get that social license to operate by having really, really substantive discussions with communities around what the positives are around this infrastructure? We're going to need to do that, and, and if we can do that, that also de-risks one of the other really important components of this, which is, which is just getting our permits and approvals through for this new infrastructure 
if the communities don't want these things, it's going to be really challenging to get those permits. Um, and I think the fifth one in terms of de-risking, and we heard this in our shocked um, uh, survey as well, a lot of the energy companies are concerned about how people are going to afford this. How are they going to afford these energy prices, especially people who, who aren't, who don't necessarily have the income streams to afford it um, easily? So how do we ensure a just transition? How do we make sure people don't get left behind in the transition, both in our countries where we have people who struggle with bills, struggle to pay for things, and suddenly they're paying so much more for energy, but also how do we also think about a just transition for the developing world? The average um, energy consumption in the developing world is about an order of magnitude lower than us here in North America. That's a huge difference. The developing world is going to develop over time. They're going to want more energy, but we really want them to make sure that that's decarbonized energy. How do we make sure that's fair for them? But I think if you take all five of these, these priorities and put them together and really have substantive conversations about it, that's how you end up de-risking the energy transition, which is something we need to do if we're going to move faster. And we absolutely need to move faster. Well, makes sense. Well, thanks, Dr. Gita. I want to thank you for your time. And to our audience, thanks for tuning in and have a great day.